Uh, well, friends, I'm sure you are all familiar with the sporting company called Nike. Uh, if you go into a Nike store, uh, you will see all sorts of sporting shoes and clothing and accessories. Uh, you may be wearing a pair of Nike shoes at the moment. Um, but I, I don't know whether you've been in a Nike store before, but uh, if you go in, they usually have uh, these huge pictures of uh, well-known athletes. Uh, have you seen them uh, in, in Nike stores? Uh, you know, these are strong and athletic and beautiful and successful people who have literally conquered the world. Uh, and the message is that if you wear one of our shoes, uh, you will be a little bit like them. Uh, now, we've started a series on the book of Revelation, and if you remember last week, we saw in chapter 1 this stupendous vision of the risen Lord Jesus in all his awesome glory and majesty and power. And today, as we head into chapter 2, we're we're going to see, as Matt outlined for us, some letters that Jesus himself sends to seven churches around Asia Minor uh, via the Apostle John. And I just want you to see that Jesus wants these churches that he writes to to be conquering churches. And so uh, if you have a look down uh, in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 2, 7, uh, he says to the church in Ephesus, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Uh, He says a similar thing at the end of each letter. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. In verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Uh, The word conquer that you see there is actually the word Nike in Greek. Uh, Although uh, here in Revelation, it's the verb that is used rather than uh, uh, the, the, the noun Nike. And uh, uh, But the thing I want you to see here is that Jesus wants his churches to be conquering churches. Uh, well, one of the things we find uh, as we go through chapters 2 and 3 is that the church that conquers is the one that conquers the power of Satan who is actively trying to destroy the churches. Uh, we'll see that again and again Satan is mentioned as being the one who, uh, who is behind the threats to the church. But uh, I just want us to pause for a moment and think about what you think a, a conquering church is like. What sort of images come to mind if I ask you what a con- conquering church should be? You know, perhaps uh, we might think of churches that are large and growing in number. Uh, Perhaps we might think of churches with impressive buildings and lots of money. Uh, Perhaps we may think of churches with people of influence in in business and politics and in society. What is a conquering church? What is a Nike church? Uh, Well, friends, uh, before we have a look at the letter in detail, I just want you to see that there's a bit of a pattern uh, to all of these letters. You probably picked it up as uh, it was read to us. But uh, I think if we understand this pattern, it will help us to understand the letter better and how to apply it in our lives. 
And so uh, if you have a quick glance at each of the letters, you'll see there that it begins with Jesus addressing uh, the angel, uh, who was probably the messenger who brought this letter to the particular church. Uh, the, the word angel just means messenger. Uh, Jesus then gives a particular description of himself. Uh, he then goes on to say that he knows something about the church that he is writing to. And uh, usually it's something good uh, that he commends. Uh, but then he goes on to mention something he has against that particular church. And then he calls on them to repent or face the consequences and uh, right towards the end of the letter, he gives uh, a solemn warning and a serious charge to listen and hear what the Spirit is saying to the church before offering some encouragement with the promise of eternal life to anyone who will listen. Now, uh, this is a general pattern uh, in each of th these letters, and you know some letters don't fit every element of that pattern. Uh, but the thing I want you to notice here is that towards the beginning of each of the letters, uh, we are given a description of Jesus. And uh, if you have been listening carefully over the past few weeks, you will know that uh, the description of Jesus that is given at the, at the beginning of each of these letters uh, is actually a reflection of the, the vision that John saw of, the, of, of Jesus last week in chapter 1. Uh, and so, for example, in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, Jesus there is the one who walks among the seven lampstands, uh, who is, uh, which we saw last week as well. In chapter 2, verse 8, he is the first and the last who died and came to life. Again, we've seen that of, of Jesus in chapter 1. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 12, he is the one with, uh, with the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. In other words... The key to being a conquering church uh, or a conquering Christian person is to know this Jesus, is to know the one who has already conquered Satan at the cross and who is now risen and seated at God's right hand as the all-conquering uh, king and ruler of this world. And so while Jesus will say some harsh things to the churches, uh, we mustn't hear what we're about to hear as a kind of salvation by works. You know, if you do these things, then you will be saved. The key is to know this Jesus, and if you know this Jesus for who he is, you will do these things. Further, uh, I want you to see that while we have seven uh, individual letters here addressed to a particular church, Jesus wants these letters to be read uh, allowed and heard in all the churches. And so, for example, in chapter 2, verse 6, he, has, he says, uh, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, once the letter was read aloud in, in, the, city, in the church at Ephesus, well, the letter was then to be taken to all the other churches in the area so that they would hear this message as well. In other words, all seven of these letters will have relevance to every church that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that as we go along uh, in this series, we'll recognize that many of the issues faced by these churches 
are the same issues that we face here at Church at Nine as well. And lastly, notice that although these letters are addressed to, to the churches, they will also have implications for the individuals who make up these churches. Uh, the refrain at the end of each letter is, to the one who conquers. It's in the singular, I will give eternal life. In other words, if I walk away from today's sermon thinking that the church must change, but I don't need to change, well, we will have missed the whole point of what Jesus is saying. Okay, so let's have a look at uh, each of the churches that Jesus writes to. Um, uh, Unfortunately, we won't have time today to cover all seven uh, of the letters. Uh, We'll be here all day. Uh, I'm okay with that, but I'm guessing uh, you're not okay with that. So we're going to try and cover four uh, uh, letters, and uh, we'll return to the the final three next week. And the first church that you see there that Jesus writes to is the church in Ephesus. And uh, I want to call this church the backsliding church. Now, the thing about the backsliding church is that in some ways, things can look okay on the surface. You can see there in verse 2 that they are a hard-working church. You know, they are doing good works, they are toiling away in ministry, they are patiently enduring and trying to live differently in the world for the sake of Jesus. Further, they are theologically very sharp. Uh, You know, they can sniff out heresy from a mile away. Uh, Again, in verse 2, Jesus says that they have tested false apostles and identified them for what they are. They are very orthodox in their doctrine and in their thinking. Uh, You know, this is the church that we see in Acts chapter 19 uh, in its formative days. Uh, This is the city where the apostle Paul spent two whole years Uh, preaching and teaching the gospel. And uh, if you remember, he has such an impact on this city that the metal workers in the city of Ephesus uh, cause a riot because everyone is converting to Christianity and no longer buying their metal idols. This is the church that Paul writes the Ephesian letter to, to encourage them to keep on seeing the riches they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, they are a church that began well. And yet, fast forward about 40 years, and notice that Jesus, who knows what is going on underneath the surface, says that they have a serious problem. You can see it there in verse 4. He says, But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first that you have abandoned your first love. In other words, here is a church that works hard and is even willing to endure opposition for being a Christian. Here is a church that is committed to right doctrine and orthodoxy. And yet when Jesus peers into their hearts, he knows that they do not love him like they first did. They do not love him and adore him and worship him in their hearts as first in their hearts that they did at the beginning. 
It's a bit like an adulterous wife who has come to the end of her marriage with her husband. You know, she dutifully um, lives together under the same roof as her husband. She eats at the same table. She sleeps in the same bed. And yet she is a stranger in the relationship. She simply goes through the motions of life. She has no affection, no dialogue, no relationship. It's been a long time since she has done something for her husband, just out of a sheer love for him and the sheer sake of pleasing him. It sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? I wonder whether we can be like this. You know, there may have been a time when you and I loved Jesus so much that you were willing to give up the world to serve him. And yet now, you are just playing it safe because, well, you love other things more in your life. There may have been a time when we loved Jesus so much that we just couldn't help speaking about him to the people around us. And yet, now we hardly speak of him to newcomers, to people we know at work, even to other Christians. You know, there may have been a time when we delighted in reading his word, the Bible, and spending time in fervent prayer to him because we wanted to know him. But now uh, we hardly spend any time with him. You know, it's not that you don't work hard at church or go to Christian things, but we can sometimes do it out of a sense of duty and just go through the motions rather than out of a true delight of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who do not love Jesus, you know, can do all the tasks, you know. We can do all the tasks, we can do all the things that signal to other people that we are Christian, and yet there is no love, either for Jesus or a genuine love for other people. Well, if that is us this morning, then what do we need to do? Well, I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to stop hiding. Jesus is the one who is described in verse 2 as the one who walks among the church and knows what is really going on. And we need to repent. You know, in verse 5, Jesus says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. You need to have a change of mind and you need to start doing those things that you and I once did in the past. Go back to his word. Go back to speaking about him with others. Go back to making risky decisions that put him first. It's interesting here, isn't it, that uh, Jesus doesn't say, just wait until you feel a kind of love before you do these things. He says, repent, do these things, and you will fall in love with me. And friends, notice that there is both a threat and a promise by Jesus. If we don't repent, 
he threatens to remove our lampstand from its place. In other words, those who refuse to repent and listen to Jesus again and again should not be surprised if Jesus removes them from the church and from the company of saved people. If the lampstand is not burning brightly for Jesus, then he will take it away. But there is a wonderful promise here as well, isn't there? For the ones who do repent and the ones who do conquer, looking to Jesus, relying on him, those who do conquer this backsliding are promised the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Well, the second church that Jesus writes to is the church in Smyrna. And uh, I want to suggest that this is the suffering church. The suffering church. Uh, You know, Smyrna was a wealthy harbour city. Uh, It was a centre of trade. It had magnificent architecture. It was one of the jewel cities of the Roman world, a little bit like Sydney. And yet, if you can see there in verse 9, the church in Smyrna were not only suffering, but they were economically poor. They didn't have grand buildings. They didn't have a big, big bank balance. They didn't have all the resources of their pagan neighbours. Why were they suffering and poor in this kind of city? Well, it's because in the Roman Empire, if you didn't bow your knee to the Roman emperor and worship him publicly, then what would happen is you would either be killed or you would be discriminated in the trade guilds which all uh, workers belong to. However, uh, from what we know of this time, it seems that the Jewish people enjoyed a a protected status uh, against this law. And so if you were a Jew, you didn't have to... um, bow, bow to, to, the, to the emperor, uh, but you just had to pay a te- tax for that privilege. Um, of course, those who were Christians would have argued that, well, they were the real Jews, and therefore they also should be exempted from bowing the knee to the emperor. But it seems that the non-Christian Jews were arguing before the Romans that these Christians, well, they're not really Jews, and so this exemption should not apply to them which means they were persecuted, they were discriminated against, and they became economically poor. It was because the Jews were against them that in uh, chapter 2, verse 9, John speaks about the slander of the Jews, whom he calls a synagogue of Satan. And so Jesus says to this church that they are to brace themselves for increasing persecution, In verse 10, Jesus says that the devil who is behind such persecution will throw some of them into prison, and some of them will face uh, tribulation, uh, probably unto death. Uh, The ten days of tribulation that you see there is a reference to Daniel 1, where, if you know the story, Daniel and his friends uh, chose not to eat the king's food for ten days, ten days. Uh, It's meant to represent a a short period of time. Uh, Later on, we we read of the thousand-year reign of Jesus. Uh, Ten days is a relatively short period of suffering in comparison. And yet, friends, here's the thing. Even though the church in Smyrna seems weak and poor and pitiful, 
Notice that in Jesus' eyes, they are the richest of all churches. They are wealthy. They are delight to him. This is one of the few churches in all of these letters where Jesus does not mention repentance. Rather, he comforts them. And he comforts them by reminding them of who he is. In verse 8, he is the first and the last who died and came to life. How comforting it is for a suffering church who, on the surface, it would have seemed like all things were out of control to know that Jesus was the one who had all things under his control from first to last. How comforting for a suffering church, some of whom will die for their faith, to hear that Jesus, the one whom they are united to, is the one who died but also came alive again. How comforting for a suffering church to hear that even though the devil can do his worst, they cannot touch Jesus, who will even use suffering to test his people and to purify them and to refine them to be the ultimate conquerors who will be given the crown of life itself. Uh, Now, friends, uh, um, we know that we live in a part of the world where this kind of persecution doesn't happen. And yet, some of us may be paying the cost for our allegiance to Jesus. Uh, Perhaps some of us you know, face ridicule from our family for being Christians. Uh, perhaps some of us face bullying in the workplace for uh, holding to certain Christian values. Uh, perhaps some of us have turned down lucrative opportunities in the workplace because we wanted to serve Jesus first. But whatever it is, I want you to see that in Jesus' eyes, You are rich beyond measure. In fact, this is the way to conquer. Just as Jesus conquered death and Satan by dying and rising again to new life, the way Christians conquer is by being willing to die for the sake of Jesus with the hope of resurrection. And so Jesus' message to us who are perhaps suffering in this way is to keep going. It won't happen here, probably, but even if you should die physically for your faith, then it will be worth it. For Jesus promises that you will not face the second death of God's judgment, which is worse by far. Uh, Now, friends, uh, I'm conscious that uh, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to sort of squash the third and uh, fourth churches together a little bit. And uh, I want to call these churches the compromising churches. Uh, The compromising churches. Uh, Now you can see there that these churches are not entirely that bad. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 13, you can see there that the city of Pergamum is described as a place where Satan dwells. Why is it called the place where Satan dwells? Uh, Well, it's because the city of Pergamum was, if you like, the capital the capital city of the whole Asia Minor area. And this was where um, the, the whole cult of emperor worship was uh, the, the, the biggest. It was the center of, of that kind of worship. 
The Roman emperor even had a temple dedicated to him. And yet it seems that the church in Pergamum were not denying Jesus by bowing the knee to the emperor, even to the point of death. And you can see there in verse 14 that Jesus even mentions a person by the name of Antipas, uh, by name, who uh, was martyred for his faith. Uh, Similarly, the church in Thyatira was a church growing in its commitment to Jesus in many ways. Uh, If you have a look at verse 19... Uh, You can see there that Jesus says that their later works exceed the first. They were a a church growing in good works, growing in love for Jesus and for one another, and doing works of service while patiently enduring as Christians. And yet, friends, both of these churches were starting to compromise their faith. Uh, I think in Pergamum, It was doctrinal compromise. And so in verse 14, Jesus says that there are some in the church who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And uh, if you know your Old Testament history, you will know that Balaam uh, was sort of like a pagan uh, magician uh, of sorts who, um, through giving sort of dodgy advice, enticed the people of Israel, to compromise their faith by sleeping uh, with their their pagan neighbours and engaging in idolatry with their pagan neighbours. You can read about it in Numbers 25 uh, in other places. Uh, And perhaps there were some in this church in Pergamum who were holding a similar view, saying, you know, uh, it's okay if you compromise a little bit as Christians. You know, it's it's okay to compromise a little bit in the values and the morality that you hold to be more in conformity to the pagan world. You know, it's okay just to bow the, the knee to the emperor and take, play, uh, take part in some of the practices. You can still be a Christian and do these things. Uh, in verse 15, we hear about another group of false teachers called the Nicolaitans. And uh, we don't actually know very much about who these people were but uh, it seems like they were teaching very similar things. However, I want you to notice that things are worse in the church in Thyatira. You know, in the church at Pergamum, you just had a few people who were starting to, to flirt with uh, wrong doctrine. But in Thyatira, it seems that there were actually uh, some who not only flirted with false teaching, but who were actually starting to Uh, get involved with the false teaching to the point that they were engaging in sexual immorality and idolatry. In chapter 2, verse 20, we hear that the church is tolerating a woman called Jezebel, who is in the church. Uh, Jezebel, um, again, if you know your Old Testament history, is the wife of King Ahab, and uh, through her influence, Israel again starts compromising with their pagan neighbours, falling into sexual immorality and idolatry. It seems that there was a similar person in Thyatira. We don't know whether her name was actually Jezebel, or Jezebel is just a metaphor for this person. But it seems like she was influencing people in the church to practice sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. 
In other words, friends, I think what's going on in these churches is the very opposite of what was going on in the church in in Ephesus. Uh, You remember what was happening in Ephesus? Ephesus were doctrinally sound, but they had lost their love. Uh, In these churches, they were so loving that they failed to be discerning and to weed out false teaching and false ways of living. You can't have a church that is full of people who are so nice that they are afraid to speak the truth in love to one another when we see other people living in immorality. And once that starts to happen, eventually the church will compromise little by little so that it becomes part of the character of the church. And again, I wonder whether we can recognize some of this in ourselves. Uh, What are the areas where you and I can compromise our godliness and just simply follow the world's values and morality? Uh, I think a big one is the idolatry of greed and the way that we prioritize our use of money for our own luxuries and comforts and possessions similar to the rest of the world rather than for the work of the gospel. I think another one may be in the area of the things that we watch on our screens. Um, You know, I heard a a world-renowned Christian sexologist say uh, not too long ago that she considers uh, programs like the Game of Thrones to be pornography. And yet what Jesus hates, we just count as entertainment. Or uh, how about participating in events such as the Melbourne Cup or Halloween? Uh, I'm not saying there are simple answers to these questions, and I don't want to lay down Uh, the law when there may not be a law there uh, in the scriptures. But so often we just kind of go with the flow of the world's values to the point where we participate and do things that look no different to the world. You know, the way we win our friends over to the gospel is not to live the same as the world, but to live differently to the world so that people can see that there is something or someone of more value than the things that the world worships. Would the one who calls us to be different to the world be horrified at some of the things that we participate in? Now, friends, um, I'm sure you can feel the weight of that. And I just want to reiterate that this is not a light-hearted matter. You know, Jesus describes himself in the most threatening terms to these two churches. In, chapter tw- uh, in, in verse 12, he says to the church in Pergamum that he is the one whose words are like a two-edged sword. And in verse 16, 
he describes himself as the son of God, the Psalm 2 king who will destroy his enemies, as well as being blisteringly pure, the one who sees all things. He's the one with searching eyes like flames of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And later he goes on to say that he will judge and destroy Jezebel for not repenting and those who compromise with her and will judge those in the church who are too loving and too tolerant to say anything when they see immorality. Well, if you or I are people who are in the habit of compromising doctrine and bending the scriptures to fit the culture, or if you or I are in the habit of compromising godliness, thinking that it's just okay to go with the flow of the world's values and morals, then Jesus says, you must repent, and I must repent. He will even threaten you to repent. For he loves his church, and he will weed out compromise. But those who do repent, and those who do conquer, well, he promises eternal life itself. And so, friends, what does it look like to be a conquering church? What what does it look like to be the Nike church? Well, a conquering church is the one that sees clearly the conquering Christ, the one who defeated Satan at the cross and the one who is now risen to life to rule at God's right hand in all glory and majesty and, and, and power. For those who see Jesus clearly will be the ones who fall in love with him. The ones who see Jesus clearly will be the ones who speak of him, even if it means suffering. And those who love this Jesus will be the ones who want to be like him in holiness and purity so that there will be no compromise. So uh, are we a conquering church in that regard? Will you and I see Jesus clearly this morning and repent, if need be, for our lack of love for Jesus or our failure to speak of him for fear of suffering or our compromise in living like the rest of the world. For Jesus says, He who has an ear, let let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to us at church at nine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our risen Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is the one who died to conquer Satan and the guilt and power of sin in our lives. We thank you that as the all-conquering one, he defeated death and rose to life to reign with all glory and majesty and honour at your right hand. And Father, we thank you that our Lord Jesus is the one who walks amongst us, his church. And we thank you that even though He speaks harsh truth, that he speaks these things to strengthen and build up his church. Now, we thank you for his words that have encouraged us this morning. 
Uh, we thank you for his words that have rebuked and challenged us this morning. And we pray that you would help us to be a church that heeds his words. Uh, please help us to repent of the shallowness of our devotion to him or our compromise with the world. And we pray that relying on his strength, that we would be the conquering church that he desires us to be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.